Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, you will hear a recent event at the centre with Dan Honig, Assistant Professor of International Development at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Dan's recent book, Navigation by Judgment, draws on a novel database of more than 14,000 discrete development projects across nine agencies and eight qualitative studies. He contends that tight controls and narrow focus on reaching predetermined targets can prevent frontline aid workers from using their skills to solve problems on the ground, undermining the performance of foreign aid. In this podcast, recorded in June 2019, he discusses the findings from his research. Um, you know, uh, and thank you really for that warm introduction, um, which I, I think might capture better than any other, frankly, of the places I've had, a, I've been uh, fortunate enough to have an opportunity to speak, the, the spirit in which I came to this project, which was very much uh, to try to understand some of the things I had seen in my time as a practitioner and think systematically about, uh, about patterns of aid management uh, and aid effectiveness in a way that uh, went beyond kind of um, the flat images and flat arguments, I think, uh, are often bandied about in the sector. And so, you know, maybe I'll, I'll start here, uh, which is the view out my window in Monrovia, Liberia, about a decade ago. Um, so <laughs> this is, at the time, I was the uh, e-management advisor to Liberia's uh, Minister of Finance. Liberia just emerged from conflict. Charles Taylor was in prison. Uh, and, of course, there was much work to be done uh, to uh, put the country back on its feet in a, in a variety of ways. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I took this picture not because... I thought 10 years later I'd be, you know, sort of showing it in a public setting and talking about what it showed, uh, but because, you know, the window uh, had just been replaced, uh, and thus it was clean, uh, and I thought this was like my one chance to take, uh, take the view of my office before, you know, dirt and grime inevitably built up. Uh, but as I look at this image now, what strikes me is the things I can put circles around and the things I can. So what do I mean by that? So here on the... Uh, top right of the picture is a building that had been uh, a public building that had been destroyed during the war. Uh, here at the top of the scene is a bridge that had fallen down, right? So this bridge is, is, is in the water. It's kind of hard to see here, I guess. But um, here is a traffic light uh, that's not working. There are no traffic lights working in Liberia at the time. There's, uh, there are, you know, the physical lights, but they don't operate. Uh, and this building just behind it is the Ministry of Transportation actually responsible for the, for the traffic light just in front. And uh, the ministry's windows are dark, even though it's midday, uh, cloudy day, because there's also no central power grid, right? Uh, all power is done by generator. It's very expensive. You keep the lights off when you can. Um, and we can imagine an aid project, I would argue, that an aid project that uh, set out clear, measurable targets of progress and proceeded along a kind of blueprint-like approach makes a lot of sense uh, for many of these projects, right? If we're trying to rebuild the bridge, that feels like a very reasonable way to proceed in terms of managing our aid activities. Uh, but while that might work for turning on the lights in the Ministry of Transportation, what about turning on the energy, the capability of the people within? What about justice or civil society strengthening or civil service reform or any of the other things we can imagine impacting uh, these folks in this street scene here in Monrovia. And what really struck me, you know, in my position was one, uh, how similar the design and management strategy was for building that road and building that justice system, as I saw across the table, you know, sort of proposals. And two, how much the people who worked for aid agencies, who I perceived to be doing the best work, seemed to spend a whole heck of a lot of time uh, arguing with their own incentive structures arguing with their own organizational systems, right? There was a lot of kind of uh, managing up to the sort of bureaucracy of aid. And it, I found myself wondering if this was, you know, sort of systematic, to what extent uh, the rules and the organizational structures were in certain conditions uh, getting in the way of good work. Um, so, you know, the argument here is in part that asymmetric information that's held by agents in the field can be really valuable uh, for good outcomes. And this is an argument that, at least framed in this general sense, I think uh, is not an argument of the left or an argument of the right, but something that scholars from across the kind of political, economic, social domain 
uh, have argued. So, you know, an intellectual hero of mine, James Scott, and Seem Like a State, the subtitle of Seem Like a State is How Certain Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed, and it is about the uh, paucity of knowledge at the center as you attempt to control things in complex environments and what that causes you to miss and why that causes sort of uh, enterprises not to work. Um, from the other side, so Scott has been, uh, somebody recently described James Scott as a, uh, as a socialist of the American political persuasion, if that gives you a sense of kind of his political uh, orientation and style. Um, on the other side of the political spectrum, uh, Hayek, right, in possibly his most famous book, The Road to Serfdom, um, <coughs> talks about the importance of knowledge, um, and indeed, uh, in arguably his first, his most famous paper is called The Use of Knowledge in, in Society, in which he argues that practically every individual has some advantage over all others, in that he possesses unique information of which beneficial use might be made, right? So Hayek might not be with me that what we need to do is get big state organizations functioning better, right? But I think uh, the insight that people close to the ground can know stuff that people far away can't, and that sometimes controls prevent those people from making effective use of that information is indeed common to this argument. That doesn't make it easy, right? That doesn't make it uh, an obvious thing uh, that we can do, right? So I think there are flaws both to kind of top-up, top-down uh, top control and to uh, bottom-up uh, driving, to empowerment of those closest to the ground, right? So, you know, if we navigate from the top, we're going to get more control, we're going to get more oversight, we're going to get standardized behavior, we might get extrinsic motivation because we can set targets and orient people towards meeting those targets or, you know, even use pay for performance, that kind of thing. Uh, but we're also going to get distortions of performance measurement. So what do I mean by distortions of performance measurement? Well, uh, economics would say that uh, when we're, we're, we're in a multitask environment, when we want someone to do something, part of which is measurable and part of which isn't measurable, if we measure the measurable part, we're going to get more of that part, but we're going to get less of everything else, right? We're going to get underinvestment in those parts of the task that can't be measured. Uh, additionally, you know, econ Nobel lawyer Jean Tirole and his co-author Philippe Aguillon argue that to get uh, people close to the coalface, I understand I'm supposed to call it here in Australia, so to get people close to the coalface, uh, actually to gather information uh, requires me to uh, let those people uh, have the ability to use that information in, uh, <coughs> in actually uh, impacting their work. So that is to say, uh, even the best motivated agents if they know that any local soft information, things they can see but can't verify, can't be incorporated into the production process, then they have no incentive to gather that information, even if they otherwise would do so and make the organization smarter as a result, right? Uh, to get knowledge of local conditions, we need to let those who have access to those local conditions have the incentive to learn about them. Otherwise, they are less likely to do so. Um, and in addition, of course, we're going to get less flexibility, less adaptability through the kind of, you know, basic mechanical logic of needing to communicate things uh, over the top and needing, you know, sort of approvals at center based on what can be verified, what can be codified, what can be transmitted uh, to move in one direction or another. On the other hand, if we navigate by judgment, we're going to get more agent initiative, we're going to get more soft information, right? We're going to be able to incorporate those things we can see, but we can't codify, we can't put numbers on, we can't transmit. <coughs> Um, we're going to get more flexibility. We might get more intrinsic motivation. Psychology suggests that the act of having more autonomy and more decision rights uh, is itself a motivator, is itself an input into motivation. Uh, but we're also going to have to rely on fallible agent judgment. Uh, so fallible agent judgment doesn't just mean kind of bad, corrupt agents, though it could mean that. Um, it also just means trusting the capacity of people to judge. Um, and, you know, human judgment, so you could say behavioral economics is the systematic study of all the ways well-intentioned human judgment uh, often goes awry. I bet you, if you think about your own life, in the last day, two days, three days, there's some judgment, hopefully trivial, that if you did it again, you would do differently. You might leave earlier for the dinner, right? You might remember to pack that extra, you know, pair of socks on the next business trip, etc., something like that. These are trivial examples, but what I mean to point out is human judgment, even when it is earnestly attempting to get somewhere, often goes awry. And if we rely on people, we're going to have to rely on that fallible judgment. 
so you might ask, okay, why are we going to get the balance wrong? You know, eight agencies weren't created yesterday. If there was this kind of balance between, uh, between judgment and control, why aren't we already at the right setting? And I guess, you know, I have two basic answers to that. So the first is, you know, if you buy my story, too, if you buy my story so far, uh, there's kind of an error of too much control and an error of too little control, right? The error of too little control is that agents are going to do things that we don't want them to do. We're going to be able to see those things and we're going to be able to adjust accordingly. The error of too much control is that the rules are going to preclude agents from doing things that would have been good had they done them, but they didn't do them because the rules kept them from doing it. And that's invisible, right? We can't see the action untaken. And so any system in a kind of like Goldilocks and the three bears sort of sense, I suppose, you know, that can adjust to one extreme but not the other is likely to overcorrect uh, in response to the kind of error it can see and not the error it can't see. Uh, but I think when we talk about aid agencies, there's another, and public organizations kind of more generally, there's another set of problems, right? Um, which is that IDOs, my term for international development organizations, uh, engage in legitimacy-seeking behavior. That is, one of the reasons they engage in control, they engage in measurement, is uh, to justify their existence to political authorizers. Um, indeed, the U.S. kind of Performance and Results Act uh, states as its very first purpose to improve the confidence of the American people in the capability of government. Not to improve the government, not to improve what it's doing, to improve the confidence of people in what it's doing. That's why we're generating information. That's legitimacy seeking. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but we should be real about what that is and what the implications are. Uh, which is, uh, and here in a kind of donor context, this is Bob Zellick when he was president of the World Bank, saying that a focus on results is absolutely key for donors, by which he means those contributing to the World Bank in this, in this context, right? Data is being generated, numbers, metrics are being gathered in part for demonstration effects. And that means that uh, an agency that has more need to engage in that demonstration is likely to do so more than is in fact necessary for the delivery, for the optimal delivery of their own programs, right? So, you know, IDOs manage up, but differentially, um, and thus differentially engage in kind of legitimacy-seeking strategies, differentially constrained navigation by judgment. So what's all that add up to? Well, you know, my argument is that most organizations are going to err on the side of too much control more often than the side of too little, and that they are the more politically insecure the agency, the more worried it is about its funding, about its existence, about, um, about you know, its staff, et cetera, the more likely it is to make this kind of mistake um, or engage in this strategy, I, should, I, I suppose I should say. And whether that this is a mistake, you know, uh, my argument is that the more unpredictable the environment, the more kind of unknown unknowns there are, the more uh, things are likely to change, the more we need that soft information the greater the returns to navigation by judgment, and thus the greater the cost of not navigating by judgment where appropriate. Uh, and the more, the less the task can kind of be measured by numbers, right? So the more we're building a justice system and the less we're building a road, right? Uh, the more likely this is to be an error because in one case, clear uh, metrics are indeed going to be able to cut through the noise and drive us in the right direction. In the other case, uh, they are less likely to do so. So here's what that looks like in kind of stylized graphical form. I should say there's no data whatsoever underlying this graph. This is entirely kind of uh, theory-based. And I drew this, I mean drew, computer drew this before, uh, before I ever turned to data. The idea here is that as the going gets tough, as we move to the right, um, the performance of all development agencies is going to decline, but it is going to differentially decline for those that engage in greater navigation by judgment such that the optimal strategy conditional on a difficult context is going to be different than the optimal strategy conditional on an easy one. So, you know, I'm from Detroit, I'm prone to car analogies. You know, one way I think about this is to say, you know, if you've got a Corvette, that Corvette is gonna go faster than a four by four on paved road. When they both go off road, they both are gonna slow down, but the Corvette is gonna slow down a lot more, such that you're better off with the four by four on the rocky road, even though they're both going slower on the rocky road, than they were uh, on the smooth surface. So uh, how do I test this? Well, first, I gather what, uh, what now is the world's largest uh, database of development project outcomes, 14,000 projects across 40 years, across uh, 180 recipient countries, across nine organizations. Um, 
just to highlight in a you know academic setting, you know, eight of those nine donors, everyone except the EC, who I couldn't get to waive confidentiality, uh, that data is cleaned and accessible and on my website of use to scholars, potential student projects, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I hope that it can be a kind of public resource that um, that helps helps folks out. Um, to get into the database, what needs to be true is there needs to be an outcome measure for a project, uh, which is a kind of holistic summary statistic, right? Which says, you know, this project was more or less successful. Here in Australia, you know, thinking about your FAQCs uh, is not the worst kind of proxy here, right? So rating of one to six, how well did the project do overall, and then on kind of subcomponents like effectiveness and efficiency, uh, et cetera. Um, there is no Australia data here. That, that was because when I did the collection, I couldn't get access to a sufficient amount of that data uh, to make that viable. But this could hypothetically be done uh, on Australia's projects as well with the, with the appropriate data. Um, so here are all those projects, uh, 14,000 projects. Kind of the point here is just to say, look, you know, perhaps no surprise to the, those in this room, uh, but I think uh, of at least mild uh, interest to some, some outside it. Development projects over the course of 40 years are pretty much everywhere, right? You know, outside of some countries in North America, Western Europe, uh, and here in Oceania, uh, or here in Australia, New Zealand, I don't know if that's, a, that, that's the right way of framing the region, um, you, eight projects are almost everywhere. And so uh, this is kind of like a, a global, global story in some ways. Um, on the outcome side, as I said, we've got this ex-post evaluation project success from different kinds of evaluators. One difficulty with these data, of course, is that uh, it's not obvious that um, a rating of four means the same thing. So um, are, are we being recorded? Is this a recorded? Okay. So uh, folks from certain cultures... You can turn it off. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. So folks from certain cultures... Uh, seem to systematically, yeah, maybe this isn't so bad. So the, the, the agencies that do the worst, if you just look at the raw numbers, are, uh, are the German agencies, right? Uh, it could be that the uh, German agencies have less successful projects. It could mean that, you know, when, when the German evaluators say you have a three out of six on your project, it doesn't mean quite the same thing as it does when the British evaluators say that you have a three out of six on your project, right? So... You know, it's hard to make direct comparisons across donors. As a result, uh, I look only within agencies. So I compare that, you know, KFW3 to that KFW4 to that KFW2, and that DFID, UK's agent, aid agency, 3 to that UK4 to that UK2 is basically the kind of, the kind of metrics here. Um, so I use IDEO fixed effects, and when not doing so, I take uh, Z-scores to sort of standardize the measures within donor. Um, and as such, I can only make relative comparisons. So on the independent variable side, on the right-hand side of your, uh, of your uh, regression, uh, what I think, what I look at is state fragility as my measure of un environmental unpredictability, right? The idea here being that a more fragile state is one in which things are likely to change more rapidly, that it, it indeed is, in fact, essentially the definition of fragility according to the, according to the World Bank. Um, and for navigation by judgment or propensity to navigate by judgment, I use two measures, both of which are time invariant, I'll talk about in just a moment, and I focus on the contingent relationship, the interaction between those, uh, between those terms. Um, so how do I measure uh, navigation by judgment? First, I uh, build essentially a scale of sort of um, freedom relative to political authorizing environments, right? So built from Paris Declaration monitoring surveys, how independent is the agency of political authorizing, how much does it kind of, is it, uh, is it altered by the vicissitudes of uh, political reaction? How do you talk more about the measures in Q&A? Um, and to what extent uh, does the idea of devolve control of the projects to folks in the field? Um, this is, uh, this is Besson's term actually. This is a kind of measure of, let's call it control freakery, right? And so how controlling is the agency of its, uh, of its projects? Um, I then validate that measure with a small field survey of those who work on the other side, uh, those who work in aid management offices. So I ask folks who deal with a lot of donors on the recipient country side, I say, look, of the donors you've talked to, um, who needs to go back to headquarters more or less uh, to get approval? Uh, and who's able to kind of just make decisions on the ground? Um, and I'm going to show you results from the Paris Declaration map, uh, measure, uh, but the results are something that would be the same if I use the, if I use the field survey. 
Um, and here are those results. So uh, for agencies that navigate by judgment more, uh, that is the top line, we see much less of a difference in performance uh, across contexts of differential fragility. That is not the case uh, for those who engage in lower levels of navigation by judgment, right? Those who engage in more control. Uh, and this result is uh, robust to using uh, sector and, uh, and recipient country fixed facts. That is to say, this works if you think about you know, a fragile state as compared to an unfragile state. Uh, it also works if you think about a single state's uh, movement you know, up and down the fragility spectrum over this 40-year period. Uh, and it also works if you think across sectors and within a given sector. Right? So, um, but of course, the results aren't the same within all sectors. Uh, and indeed, the result is driven by less externally verifiable sectors. So that is to say, I take sectors which seem quite similar, uh, but I can differentiate based on the sort of standard sector code. So, you know, transportation road building versus transportation management, right? Drip irrigation system construction versus agricultural water management, et cetera. And it's that latter set. It's the less verifiable, more management-laden tasks. Uh, where we see these sorts of big differences in performance. Um, I do a lot of robustness, which I'm happy to talk about more in Q&A, just to say this isn't being driven by differences in valuation type, it's not being differences, it's not being driven by who has projects where when, right? So selection of donors into different kinds of projects. Um, it's also not just about being a good donor, using other measures of kind of good donorness or best practice don't get us the same sort of, sort of results here. Um, but as I say, happy to, happy to talk more questions. So, you know, okay, Dan, you've shown me some kind of like top level, uh, you know, uh, econometric results, but what really is going on here? What are, what are the mechanisms here? So uh, to get at that, I do eight case studies looking at uh, context of high and low environmental unpredictability and high and low uh, propensity to navigate by judgment. And then also within each of those cells, looking at DFID as a fairly flexible donor and USAID as a fairly constrained donor, I look at the sort of uh, differences in projects that are more and less verifiable, right? Where numbers are likely to work more and less well. So, you know, first, and I'm going to talk about two South Africa projects in a second, but first, just to say, I do see this kind of link back up to political authorizers really mattering in the way people talk about their projects. So, you know, in South Africa, there are 13 mentions of Congress and only one of Parliament. Uh, and that single mention of Parliament, which comes from somebody who I asked the question of explicitly, right, um, is, uh, is from somebody who's worked for projects on both sides, right, uh, who's worked for implementers both of USAID and different projects in South Africa, a South African person. Uh, and they say, you know, no, it doesn't really come up. People don't really talk about Parliament, but they do talk about Congress. And the reason they talk about Congress is because the US, USAID, uh, wants these numbers because they want to know uh, what they, because they are providing so much for South Africa and they want to know what it is that they have done with their money. Um, and the reason I love this quote is because it puts it in a kind of plain English way that I think is absolutely intuitive and makes sense. If I gave somebody a lot of money, I would want to see what they were doing with my money too. Uh, but the argument is that sometimes the finding out what's going on with the money undermines the actual doing of stuff with the money. Uh, and that's the kind of world of tension we're in. Uh, USAID is, is kind of a sort of uh, classically insecure agency. The former head of USAID, Andrew Nazios, has described the agency as suffering from uh, what he terms obsessive measurement disorder, which is uh, the mistaken belief that things will get better by counting them, right? Um, in the quotes from the interviews, there is a lot of talk. This is a, this is a representative quote, but far from the only one I can put on the slide of targets being set from above, everything then flowing down, numbers happening to add up to meet arbitrary goals. Uh, another US government official describes it as an agency under siege for going on 30 years now. Uh, what happens when you are under siege? Uh, well, it makes you cautious. Of course it does. It would make me cautious. If I thought my boss was looking over my shoulder, I'd be sure to dot every I, cross every T, take very little risk. Um, and that's kind of the stylized case of, of USAID. Um, so two of these two projects, these are two uh, municipal government capacity building projects in South Africa. Um, they are almost exactly the same size. That is to say, I believe if I use the exchange rate on entry, USAID has a bigger project. 
but I use the exchange rate at completion diffid as the bigger project. Uh, they happen in uh, overlapping geographic areas. There's actually one community that receives both projects. Um, they uh, touch almost the same number of communities, right? And they have almost the same goals. That is to say, I think the project would have worked equally well if they, in fact, flipped their top line goals with each other, right? In the sense that what both of these projects ended up doing was working to sort of improve uh, expenditure management, uh, revenue systems, budgeting, those kinds of you know, public financial management sorts of things at the municipal level. Um, but they went about this in very different ways. So USAID runs this project by uh, sending out training visits, right? By having folks go from headquarters, conduct a training, uh, and then come back, right? Whereas DFID implants advisors in the communities, has them stay there for a couple of years, uh, and work to sort of um, make these, improve these systems on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, that means they, they focus on very different things. So USAID is trying to train staff, whereas DFID is doing things that are a lot less verifiable in my language, right? So DFID is unblocking delivery obstacles and achieving institutional coherence, uh, things that are much harder to count, much harder to assess in kind of a, a quantitative way. Um, and that means they go about doing things in very different ways. So, you know, for USAID, so I file freedom of information requests with both these governments and get uh, project documents, right? Um, for USAID, I can tell you on June 13th, 2008, if it had been a work day, uh, I can tell you if anyone went anywhere, right, for the project. If they went there, I can tell you uh, the cost of their flights or the mileage that got reimbursed, right? I can tell you, in some cases, what was ordered for lunch at the training. Um, in at least one case, there was some concern of fraud, so there is a sketch and pictures of the room in which the training took place to make sure it could accommodate the number of people that were reported, right? Training, I can show you sign-up lists. Uh, I can show you more. You know, we walked over here uh, from the Development Policy Center, right? Uh, I can sh tell you more about this training 11 years ago than I can tell you about how I walked from where I came from to this room today, right? But of course, I can't tell you whether anyone learned anything, and I can't tell you whether they did anything at all with whatever they might have learned. On the other hand, on the inside, I really, honestly, I can't tell you much. I can show you this kind of assessment report, which is kind of an assessment of status quo and an evaluation of where things are from the, from the advisors. And then I can show you implementation reports, which are conditional on those assessment reports. So, you know, based on the assessment, we try to implement uh, reforms, how that implementation is going, and then ultimately kind of a completion report that says what happened overall as a result on the different side. So this is kind of the equivalent, as a teacher, of asking a student to compose the test, to take the test, and then to tell me how they did on the test that they wrote and they took without any oversight from me. And so uh, I want to argue that I am not at all concerned that DFID has too much control, right? And I'm not at all concerned that USAID has too little control in this case, which is why I use them as kind of stylized examples. So what happens? Well, the USAID project, according to the people running it, might not have made the most dent or impact. Trainers talk about the idea that people don't respond to the trainings, they don't care about being in the trainings, and there's not much we can do, we're just basically counting them, and then uh, they, can go, they can go on their way. Uh, on the other hand, the DFID project is sometimes, but by no means always, effective. Uh, I end up agreeing in this case with the DFID <laughs> final report, which says essentially that there are uh, that there are some highly positive examples in selected municipalities. And so, you know, I want to call this a comparative win for DFID, but let's think about what it means as a comparative win. It's not a comparative win because DFID is always successful. It is a comparative win because DFID is sometimes successful. But the DFID evaluator can go back and say, okay, it worked in some places, it didn't in others. The USAID evaluator, well, the data is set up that unless someone went back and did this work and talked to people, tried to figure out what actually happened, USAID, as a kind of like performance management system, can't see its own failure, right? So USAID's project looks perfectly successful from the standpoint of USAID. Um, and, you know, one of the tricky things here is that getting more success means being more honest, in my view, about the fact that not everything can or plausibly could succeed if we think about how complicated development work is. Uh, and happy, very happy to talk much more about that in Q&A.
Um, I want to argue, you could say, look, you know, you've told me a story here, great, but why didn't USA just do what Disney did if that was the right thing to do? Um, I want to argue that they couldn't have, that basically design limitations precluded them from making that sort of management design choice. You know, USA indicators are chosen because they're easier to count, but they don't tell about impact, it becomes a numbers game, uh, and it becomes even more numbers chasing towards the end. Indeed, DFID, USAID actually shifts very late in the project to some use of advisors for smaller scale, uh, you know, kind of shorter time period. We see the DFID project, it seems to be doing well, the folks on the ground push for it, right? Uh, but they don't let them actually make any real decisions or do anything without coming back to headquarters. They can't, they can't within their own sort of institutional environment manage in the same way that DFID is managing these projects. Um, so stepping back from this case pair to kind of the eight case pairs as a whole, uh, I think there are clear constraints stemming from political authorizing environments to agents. And I think the ability to navigate by judgment is linked to success, particularly in less legible environments and for less verifiable tasks. Um, and I see evidence both of the soft information channel, which I've been talking about, the stuff we can see but can't verify, and also organizational learning. Organizations that make judgment calls, um, that empower their people, learn something as a result of doing projects, which then they can incorporate into the next phase. If you don't make the judgments, if you don't make the calls, you can't learn from the calls, and uh, you have some greater propensity to repeat the same errors. Um, that doesn't make navigation by judgment uh, perfect, and in one of the case pairs, uh, in South African, in South Africa, delivering antiretroviral drugs. I argue that USAID's top-down control and focus on the verifiable outcome of, you know, drugs getting into people's mouths uh, allows them to have a much more effective project than DFID's uh, more kind of soft, uh, unverifiable approach. Um, so results in some. So this is stylized from the cases. The red is DFID, the blue is USAID. Uh, DFID performs better as environments broadly uh, get more difficult, moving to the right. This is the uh, graph I showed you at the beginning based on no data whatsoever. Um, and here are the quantitative results. And I want to argue that these three pictures add up into one kind of co cohesive picture, which is this idea that political authorizing environments are sometimes inducing suboptimally conservative behavior and constraining field agents. And that output measurement is a big part of that, is a big part of that kind of constraint toolkit. Um, with navigation by judgment being contingently beneficial, sometimes being the right way to go as we manage aid projects, and with organizational structure and bureaucratic incentives mattering in aid delivery. Those of us in the world of aid often talk about implementation challenges. That traditionally means uh, stuff going on in recipient countries, right? as aid programs are delivered. Uh, I, my argument very much is that the stuff going on in Canberra, in DC, uh, you know, in Auckland, in London, matters quite a lot too, to the kind of implementation challenges of aid projects. And uh, if you buy my story here, then you know, I guess my view is that uh, fragile states are the places where uh, aid has the most ability to change development policy, has the most ability not just to change levels, but also to change trajectories uh, and to have kind of the biggest impact. Uh, if you agree with that statement, or even if you don't, uh, perhaps it's particularly unfortunate that these navigation strategy areas are going to be particularly frequent and particularly consequential uh, in the most fragile states, the most unpredictable environments. So what does all this mean for aid? Uh, well, I think we should think about piloting new navigation strategies, right? We should think about management as a potential domain where we focus our efforts and our attempts at reform. Um, we should also think hard about when uh, a focus on measurable results is supporting and when it is undermining actual results, right? So everyone's in favor of more actual results. The question is when the measurement and targets regime, the KPI-ness of, of aid, is moving us in the right direction uh, and when it isn't. Um, and to change things, I think we need to go beyond sort of formal changes in the rules. We need to think about the plumbing, right? So if you give aid agents more ability to sort of make decisions, but no incentives to do so, uh, they are unlikely to change their behavior simply because, you know, today's, if you've been working for a large, if you work for DFAT, this is not the first reform you've ever seen. This is not the first attempt to change things, right? And unless I make it clear to you that you are going to be okay, even if this reform goes out the window as others have before, you're very unlikely to change your actual behavior. And that very much means we need to get into the nitty gritty of procurement systems, of 
HR systems, you know, of career concerns, uh, of review, of promotion policies, in a way to actually encourage not just the formal right to, but also the actual use of any greater envelope of discretion that might be given to agents. Um, and I also don't think we should make this, uh, we should push back on the argument that this is uh, about real accountability versus not, right? Uh, so take that USA DFID example from a few minutes ago. You know, USA doesn't know what's really going on and calls, calls it success, right? Moving to a world where you better understand reality can't be a world where you are becoming less accountable, right? If accountability is making sure that our A projects actually do useful stuff, well then being able to know if they've done useful stuff is a pretty critical, necessary part of that of that process. Um, and you know, I think often, at least in the development community, we have too often conflated, I have a recent paper with Lance Pritchett that makes this argument sort of straightforwardly. Um, we've too often conflated uh, accountability and accounting and made it seem as if the only thing which constitutes accountability is a kind of verification metrics-based approach. But you know, as we argue in that piece, and happy to talk more about, High-functioning accountability systems are very often not about counting, but about account, right? About justification, about narrative, about evaluation of how folks are doing. Uh, that's the way it works, I would argue, you know, on police forces. That's the way it works when we think about reviews of medical doctors post-surgery. Um, and that's the way it works in high-functioning public systems in a variety of countries, a variety of, of conditions. Um, and there's no reason we can't take that message to the world of international development as well. Um, so, you know, hopefully many of you in this room care about development, but, uh, you know, I don't think this is just a development story. I think aid agencies are public agencies, and uh, I think over the course of the public service, we would do well to think more about uh, what I think of as the reductive seduction and power uh, of metrics. Um, and, you know, we need to remember not just what we gain, but what we lose when we shift to a more kind of technology-laden approach, right? So uh, there's a U.S. public radio program called Planet Money, which recently had an episode called The Future of Work is Like a UPS Truck. UPS is our, like, package delivery service, right? And so, um, and it talks about how, you know, these drivers are told where to park, they're told how to load the truck, they're told... Uh, which packages to take out first. Uh, my favorite is they, they're told which pocket to put the pen in because there are small efficiency savings if you use the opposite hand to open the door from the one that holds the pen, right? And this may well be a good way to run package delivery services. I'm not suggesting UPS has it wrong, though I'm not sure I want to work there, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I am here to suggest that not a lot of other things look like running a UPS truck that way. Um, you know, this brilliant book on bureaucracy uh, by, named Bureaucracy by James Wilson about 30 years ago, uh, had as its paradigmatic examples of places in the public service where we couldn't measure things well unless you needed to do things differently, teachers and cops, right? Today, body cameras on police officers are uh, an active, active topic of debate, uh, as is teacher value added and measuring the performance of teachers. And my argument is not that these are necessarily bad approaches. I think there, there are other discussions, other, other dialogues to be had about that. It is that when we move to such a system, we often focus on what we gain, but we also lose something, right? We lose discretion, we lose judgment, we lose some sense of nuance. And we need to think about that balance uh, and where, indeed, what we lose may be, in some cases, perhaps it's minority cases, but at least in some cases, more important than, uh, than what we perceive ourselves to be gaining. So beyond politics, you know, authorizers are a form of management, and uh, reporting on performance can sometimes undermine performance. Managing up and managing down are sometimes intention, um, and sometimes maybe we can get more juice uh, with less squeezing, not with more. Um, so thank you. Uh, before you know, I'd love. I look forward to your questions, your comments. Happy to talk more. Happy to extend. You know, etc. Um, before I do, let me just say, you know, people often say, uh, "Don't judge a book by its cover." Right? Um, I am perfectly comfortable with you judging this book uh, by its cover. Uh, this cover photo is of uh, is of a statue that's called Man at the Wheel in a town called 
uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts, uh, in the US. It's uh, the setting of the book and uh, the movie The Perfect Storm, if that, if that rings any bells. It's a fishing town where people go out to sea, and sometimes, tragically, they perish, right? Um, and this is a memorial to those who have perished. And, you know, when people die at sea, uh, we, we, we mourn them and we build statues to them, and that at least feels to me entirely appropriate. Um, but what we don't do is say that because some people have died at sea, the right thing to do is to remove judgment from the class of actors, right? We don't say that the right way to steer fishing fleets is to put, you know, a kind of control center on, the, on land, put GPS in all the boats, and steer them by remote control. We know that judgment's fallible. We also know that the best way to organize this task is to let the person who has their hand on the wheel do the steering. What is, what's the upshot of that? Well, you know, does judgment fail? Absolutely. Of course it fails. It fails all the time. It fails in myriad ways. If the question is, is judgment perfect, the answer is no, right? But the alternative to judgment, a kind of top-down control regime, is also imperfect, right? Measurement fails all the time. Top-down controls fail all the time. They also fail in myriad ways. So the question isn't, is one of these a perfect strategy? It is not. The question is, when we compare strategies, when are we better off with one, and when are we better off with the other? Uh, and I'm here to suggest, and, and I think the book and the evidence suggests, uh, that far more often than we give it credit for, uh, we are going to be better relying on fallible human judgment. Thank you. All right, so Dan has very kindly navigated to the end of his talk in time for us to field some questions. Uh, so please uh, pitch uh, any questions you might have for Dan at Dan, uh, remembering that questions are usually shorter than tweets and they do end in question marks. <laughs> Should I do that? Yes. Hi, thanks, Dan. This was really fascinating, really cool project. Um, I have two questions. One is, um, this all sounds great and really sensible, but if I think about the pressure that's being put on NGOs and, you know, there's a lot of structural pressure to be more accountable and to provide more metrics and count and measure and, you know, the professionalization of, of NGOs in particular is creating yeah. a lot of pressure to have these easy reporting tick box systems. Um, so I wonder how uh, you can push back against that. I mean, I think this is a good contribution to that conversation. But it also would lead, I would think, donors to kind of throw up their hands and say, well, you know, how do we count this? And um, the other question is, to what extent are you getting this message and this book out to the donor community, which I think is one of the most important audiences to receive that, because they're the ones that are trying to hold people accountable. Thank you. Happy to take a few of them. And I'm sorry, your name? Oh, yes. Yeah, so I'm Wendy Cohen. I'm doing a PhD, but I also have been working for DFAT for some time, and I've worked for NGOs as well. And I'm just thinking, I, uh, lots of what you say really resonates with, with my own experience, and I think it's fantastic to put it into this book format, um, which I look forward to reading. I, um, I, I agree that it's, you know, as, as you say, you need a balance. You can't say that there's this um, spectrum and you need to be at one extreme or the other, and I think also, I'm interested in the grey areas in between. So I guess I'm thinking, talking of NGOs for example, um, I'm thinking of working with NGOs who are almost, I'm thinking, are, are they trying to kind of, um, it's almost like they're trying to get the best of both worlds by, in a way, they're giving people on the ground autonomy to get on with stuff, partly because they don't have the resources to manage everything centrally, yeah. <laughs> like USA would be able to. Um, but then also um, recognizing the need for reporting. Um, so then having people back at headquarters uh, like clean and tidy up the reports before. So I would have the experience of sitting um, in a developing country in the embassy looking at a report from someone who worked in the same city as me and saying to them, so, you know, I, I've talked to you about this project. It sounds, you know, that I know there's more to it than this, but what you're saying in this report seems to miss some of that, and they're like, yeah, I know. I wrote a different report, then it had to go back to X capital city, it's got cleaned up. There's really strategic important reasons why they would take that approach. Yeah. Um, so 
let's say more than a dozen and less than two at this point in that regard. Um, and then OECD DAC and you know, to authorizing environments, you know, World Bank executive directors, those kinds of folks, is very much because I think we need uh, to change the conversation. Um, and what do I think the next step is? Well, I think the next step is looking within each agency to gather the data that we have. We have heterogeneity of management practice within, uh, within DFAT projects, right? We have heterogeneity of context, right? We have new facilities which are being managed in different ways. Let's see what we can learn in a variety of ways from the place that we're in, right? Let's see what could happen if we created space for a frank conversation between those NGOs which are intermediating, right? and the donors in such a way that the NGOs were not afraid that if they told the donors what was really going on, that that would have consequences for their funding, right? I, I, I have lots and lots and lots of conversations with people at different parts, in different parts of the beast. And what I am, am most surprised about, running around talking about this book for the last year, is how much their diagnoses are the same, right? So that is to say, I thought I was gonna write this book and I was gonna spend a lot of time convincing people that they had a problem. And it turns out that I wrote this book, and I run around, and people say, yeah, great, this is systematic. This, this I really love, if I could say, hearing that it resonates with felt reality. You know, that feels, that feels very important to me. Um, but they say, this is my world. I know this is my world. And, and the people who say that aren't just the people in the field. The people at headquarters know that their levers are bad, too. They know. They've been in East Timor. They've been in Papua New Guinea. They know that these environments do not look the sanitized way they are in the reports. And so the question becomes, if we all recognize we have a problem, how do we start a conversation about changing it? And I think that, uh, and my frankly, my primary reason for standing in this room today is in the hopes that uh, some of the folks, some of you in the audience are going to be part of engaging in that change and starting that conversation. So maybe another round of questions. Let's go, just to make sure I don't fully uh, exclude the other side. So let's go one, two, three, would that be okay? And I'm happy to stay longer. I know officially it ends at 1.30, just to say, I have no back end, though folks should feel free to exit at whatever time, if that's okay for me to, yeah, please not shut. Um, Hi, Dan, I'm the Lindell and I'm a PhD student here at ANU. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I guess my question is around what the alternative is in that we're not ever going to get away from any metrics and measurement being required. And yet we know from statistics out of the World Bank how few of their reports are ever downloaded when they looked at how many PDFs had ever, ever been downloaded off their website. Statistics out of the Centre for Global Development, actually. The World Bank didn't tell us that about the World Bank. Bank. <laughs> Independent think tanks did. So we know, we know that reports aren't being reached. Evaluation reports are notoriously difficult to get hold of and, and to read. Mm -hmm. So what's the alternative? How do we how do we move to a different system if it's not fully measurement and it's not making full reports available? What's what's the middle ground? Sure. Thank you. Uh, Dave Green, independent consultant. Uh, I think my question flows on well from yours. Um, yeah, I just wonder whether you see value in, in shifting the focus from accountability for results to accountability for good adaptive management processes. And if you do see value in that, like to what extent can you codify good navigation by judgment? Is that something worth attempting? Yeah. Or does that ultimately lead us down, you know, the same to, to the same sort of pitfalls that you, you've highlighted in your research? It's a great question. And Keith Joyce, I worked for Ozo for 27 years, I'm now retired. My question is about the people who are making the judgments. Do you look at all as to the capacity or expertise that the people who are making the judgment, either in the field or at head office, their capacity to make those judgments? And just as an aside, Australia also had a, a local government project in South Africa between about 2000, 2005. Nice. Doing just the same sort of stuff. Love it. How did it go? If you, uh, I can't remember for a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect it wasn't that successful. <laughs> um, forgive me for, for, for not knowing of the Australian attempt there. Um, but uh, yes, it was, it was quite, a, quite a busy time for municipal government capacity building. Um, so uh, Dave, let me take your question first. Um, and then uh, let me try to think about the alternative collectively uh, between you, Belinda, and Keith and your problems. So, um, 
Depends a lot on what you mean by codify, right? So, um, so what's the right focus of the inquiry, right? So, first, uh, just just to say, you know, as, as of course the evidence makes clear, you know, mine is a horses for courses argument. It's not a one size fits all argument as regards adaptability or flexibility or the importance of adaptive management or any of those other things, right? So. Um, but if I interpret your question to be in those projects, which are hardest to measure from the top, right? Uh, how should we figure out what's going on? Then yes, I think we should shift at least from our current way of thinking about what uh, a focus on results means. I don't think I want to say that that means we're not focusing on results, right? So, you know, I think the process of making the decisions is an important one to focus on. And that the way forward as a way of bridging into that question very much is about structured judgment, right? How do we structure both the use of judgment for people of different levels of capability, and how do we structure the evaluation of that use of judgment? And so, you know, I alluded kind of briefly to the, to the medical example, right? Um, and I think that there is a lot that we can learn from that. So, you know, a doctor conducts a surgery, that surgery goes poorly. What happens? Well, the surgery is discussed by that doctor and lots of other doctors who could imagine being in the same circumstance. It's not discussed solely, it's also discussed with patient advocates, it also is discussed with hospital management, right? Uh, but there's an understanding that a profession, and part of professionalization, in my opinion, rightly construed, is about the notion that there is an importance of intersubjective judgment which can be evaluated, at least an important input into that evaluation is the judgment of other similarly placed professionals. Um, and so creating structures like that, codifying things like the process of making those evaluations is in my opinion, a very good thing. Um, you know, another thing about those doctors, of course, is that if a doctor makes mistakes, if a doctor chooses, is seen to be lacking, let's say, in a lot of surgeries, then that doctor is no longer a doctor, right? The, the lesson isn't, but neither is it the case that the first time the doctor makes an error, that doctor is never allowed to practice medicine again. So, you know, I know that's not terribly helpful as a kind of like, here's the rule kind of, kind of statement, but, you know, just to point out that the answer is not never, and it's not always, it's not, you know, extreme permissiveness, but neither is it um, to allow no mistakes. And thinking about how we codify those processes and how we evaluate whether you are not just being adaptive, I would say, but being adaptive towards the towards ends that make the project better. Things changed, I changed the product, great, right? Did you change it in a direction that made it work better? That to me is the quality of the judgment in some sense in that context, um, is I think a very good direction to go. Um, and what does the alternative look like? Well, you know, that speaks a bit to it, but you know, I think, uh, I think Keith's note of capacity, and let me just say, um, in the case studies, I talk a little bit about the capacity of training of the people, um, but I, of course, can't see it systematically across 14,000 projects. Uh, do I think that more capable people obviously make, are more likely to make good judgments? Of course I do. Um, I also think that systems that do not allow people to make judgments are likely to induce differential selection out of the most capable, right? Um, and uh, differential selection in as well, who wants to enter a job where they can't use judgment. And so it's not just about today's agents, it's also about dynamic sort of HR over time, which is part of the argument I was making yesterday, DFAT. I have a chapter in my book about those kinds of agent dynamics. But, and I think the future has to very much be about this kind of professionalization in that sense, and about, um, <clears throat> about not a one-size-fits-all approach to projects, right? Um, and one that recognizes, and you know, to me, one of the great things, I, I've heard lots of development folks, uh, I, I can't find a good, 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 good culturally appropriate word, but I've, I've heard them, um, when people talk about the merger of Aussaid and DFAT, right? Those who come from the Aussaid side uh, do not have many lovely things to say about that merger. Um, and many of those may well be justified, right? Uh, but, I just want to point out one thing about the Foreign Service, which is diplomats recognize diplomacy is built on the notion of navigation by judgment in some sense, right? Of trusting the perception, the uncodifiable perceptions of relevantly placed others, right? That's why there's so much focus on training. That's why there's so much focus on acculturation. 
And you know, I am not suggesting that what we need in development is more of an old boys network. That is not at all what I think is the right answer. Uh, but the one feature of that old boys network, traditionally, is that those old boys all come from the same places and all trust one another. And building that kind of trust, building a service where people uh, of many, many different kinds and many different backgrounds uh, feel comfortable relying on and also interrogating each other's judgment, I think that very much is the way forward uh, for the best possible conduct uh, of development You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.